That is our prayer this morning, that we might be nearer, nearer to Jesus, our Savior. And that's my prayer that this message this morning will result in a closer drawing to Christ. I want you to turn again to Isaiah chapter 11. And I have not been able to get away from this book, the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah is writing like many prophets, uh, writing sometimes giving prophecies that will result in a threefold outcome. Oftentimes when the prophets would preach or when they would see, they were often referred to as seers, they would see things that others wouldn't see. They would often see something happening in the immediate future. Something that was pertaining directly to the nation of Israel and those in their surroundings. And they would often prophesy also of the coming of the Messiah, which was in the far off future. But often as well, the prophets would prophesy of not just his first coming, but his second coming as well. So we have in this 11th chapter of Isaiah, really this threefold kind of a prophecy. Dealing with immediate troubles and concerns. Dealing with the first advent or coming of the Savior. And then also dealing with his second and ultimate coming. When he shall truly reign, rule and reign victoriously. Somebody once described it as looking at three sets of mountain ranges. And often the prophets would not, in their own minds, wouldn't be able to distinguish which range each mountain was in. Peter speaks about this in two Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1. He speaks about how these prophets oftentimes longed to understand what exactly it was they were speaking of. Longed to see what we in hindsight have already seen. And we now are looking forward to. But this is how Isaiah is writing. This is exactly sort of the um, position he's writing in. By the way, the history of humanity is really a history of cycles. It's a constant cycle of failure, God's judgment, and God's grace. We find that over and over and over again, in in particularly in connection with God's people. And that's where we are right now with in Isaiah chapter 11. Israel is under the judgment of God and God is using the Assyrian army to execute that judgment. And you might say, why? Well, go back to Isaiah chapter 10 with me, please. In verse number one, woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees and that right grievousness which they have prescribed. Now let me just stop for a moment. The judgment of Almighty God upon His people and upon nations where His people dwell often had to do with the unrighteous decrees that had been made. And we are living in a day, an age, and a generation when many unrighteous decrees have been made and are being made. When laws are being passed that permit the murder of innocent little babies before they ever are able to take a breath outside of their mother's womb. Laws are being passed that not only permit but promote 
rude and crude and vile sexual behavior. And we're living in a day when unrighteous decrees are being written. That right grievousness which they have prescribed. To turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of my people. That widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. And what will ye do in the day of visitation? The truth of the matter is we're living in a day when children are being brainwashed from the time that they enter into preschool, the time they enter into nursery and day school and on up. They begin to be are, are brainwashed with a system from the world. And so our nations are not only turning aside the needy from judgment, taking away the right from the poor of God's people, and widows are their prey, and they're robbing the fatherless. What will you do in the day of visitation? And in the desolation which shall come from far, to whom will ye flee for help? Where will you go when you've turned your back on God? And where will you leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And the scriptures are very clear, without me, without God, the judgment of God will be grievous. It's interesting though, in the middle of all of that, there is always a remnant of people who do have him, who are with him. And they're always told, God always speaks peace to them in that time. In verse 5, we're told that it's the Assyrians that God will use. Oh, Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath. Will I give him a charge to take away, to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets? Interesting. He's going to use the nation of Assyria against what he calls a hypocritical nation. And can I tell you, we are living in the midst of a hypocritical nation. Not just this, but all of the Western nations. It's an amazing, it's not amazing, a terrible thought. Those who cry for tolerance and those who cry uh, for Uh, allowances to be made and and let's allow people to believe what they want to believe and do what they want to do and liberty they cry at the same time they bind God's people in chains prohibiting them from preaching that which is thus saith the Lord a hypocritical nation indeed and this is exactly where we find the nation of Israel at the time a hypocritical people And they are beneath the judgment of God. And the means of that judgment is the Assyrian people. And the king of Assyria in the midst of all of this becomes proud. And that's the way it always is. When God uses a nation or a people to judge his people. They often become very proud. Thinking somehow that it was them that is doing all of this ruling and conquering. And so in verse number 12. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed this whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. The work of judgment. I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. Why? For he saith, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent 
And I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed their treasures and I put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. It's the same thinking that Pharaoh had in Egypt when he was able to suppress God's people in bondage for 400 years. I have done all of this. Nobody is greater than me. And the world system today is stomping on the heads of God's people. Boasting of their wisdom. Somewhere in some office or in some building, somewhere, there are people rubbing their hands together with glee at all the confusion that's being caused around the world today. Somewhere people are scheming with the wisdom of men, planning. No doubt about it, there's something diabolical about the situation in which we live today. And no doubt about it, their conversation sounds exactly like this. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Little do they know and realize that there is one that sitteth in the heavens, that laughs and shall one day soon have them in derision. And God will deal with them the same way he dealt with Assyria. And the Bible says there in verse number 14, My hand hath found a nest, as a nest the riches of the people. And as one gathereth eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth. And there is none that move the wing, or open the mouth, or peep. And verse 15, Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up. Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. A very interesting thought. Uh, that, that the saw or the axe would be able to say, look at what I've done. I've cut this tree down. When the reality is the axe could do nothing unless a man of strength were to take up the axe and use it. And so men today... Imagine themselves to be doing great things. And the truth is they're only tools. And in verse 33 and 34 we find the end result. Behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts shall lop the bow with terror. And the high ones of stature shall be hewn down. And the haughty shall be humbled. And he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron. And Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. This is what was going to happen to the nation of Assyria. And by the way, that is the exact same demise of every nation and every person that raises their hand in, in oppression against God's people and against God's work. And we'll see that to be done ultimately once and for all against that wicked man of sin, that wicked one who will attempt once and for all to squash God's people. It all looks bad. Because at the end of chapter 10, not only has God's people been mowed down in judgment, but also now Assyria has been cut down in judgment. And the prophet Isaiah is looking across the field that once was a forest of mighty men. And now there's nothing, all of them cut down to the ground, laid bare. Some of them had already been cut down years and years ago. And now the most recent cut, cutting down will be that of the Assyrian army and the Assyrian king. But now it looks like a field of death. And can I tell you, sometimes we look around and feel as if we're looking at a field of death, despair. 
But out of the dark night comes forth light. And out of the depths of death comes life. And out of corruption and misery comes healing and joy. This is where we approach to chapter 11. After failure and judgment comes grace. Verse number one. And there shall come forth out of all of this death and destruction and judgment. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And now Isaiah moves from his first line of prophecy to the immediate uh, judgment and destruction of God's people under Assyria. And then Assyria, he then moves to a second realm of prophecy that deals with the coming of the Messiah. And out, out of that death shall come a rod out of the stem of Jesse. I want you to think with me for just a moment. There shall come forth. Out of the trees that have been cut down. There shall come out of the stem of Jesse. This is the prophecy of our Messiah. The one who would break the yoke of sin. In chapter 10 and verse number 27. It shall come to pass in that day. That his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder. And his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Now Isaiah was speaking about how the chains of the Syrian bondage would be broken. Just like they were broken one day from the chains of Egyptian bondage. But he was, he was prophesying a prophecy that he didn't understand. That this stem, that this anointing, that this rod coming up out of Jesse would not just break the bands of Assyrian bondage. But break the bands and the chains of sin that have held humanity for all of history. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. God's people have given up hope. By the time that the Savior showed up on the scene, God's people had given up all hope. The throne of David had been laid waste. There wasn't a righteous king that had ruled on that throne for centuries and centuries. And for the last 400 years before the birth of Jesus, before the rod coming forth out of the stem of Jesse, for the previous 400 years, not a word from God, not a prophecy from his lips, not an angel from heaven. And all of that remnant, that tiny remnant, the majority of God's people had gone so gone altogether astray into Babylon. And there was a small remnant. Most of them had given up hope. But there shall come forth a rod. I want you to think about this for a moment. Notice the description. Especially in comparison with the kings of this world. Because we were talking about what God had just done is going to do with the Assyrian kings. That he's going to lop the bough with terror. That's the idea of a big massive branch. And the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, cut down. And the haughty shall be humbled. And he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron. And Lebanon shall fall by the mighty by a mighty one. Lebanon is in reference to some of the largest trees. So all of these big massive trees and massive forests 
would be laid absolutely to the ground. And then out of the middle of all of that comes a tiny little sprig. A tiny little twig. Now in comparison to those big, lofty, majestic trees that once ruled and reigned the earth, this little twig seems to be nothing. Seems to be really kind of despicable. But this Savior, this Messiah, this anointed one who shall deliver his people does not come as a majestic tree of Lebanon. It comes as a rod, a twig or a sprig. And it will come, the scriptures say, out of the stem of Jesse or literally out of the stump of Jesse. Because that kingdom and that throne had been laid low. And in fact, it had been brought to such shame and lowliness that they'll no longer refer to it at the moment as the throne of David. But instead, the throne of Jesse. Not even the throne of Jesse, but the stem, the the stump of Jesse. A stump hidden in the high grass. You can't even see it because for so long it's laid low. But the glorious throne and kingdom of our Savior came from this. Out of this stump will arise the one upon whose shoulders shall rest the government. And whose government shall know no end. From the stump of Jesse. A nobody. That's what David said in 1 Samuel chapter 18. From the time that Jesse was born to the time that Jesse died. He remained an absolute nobody. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse number 18. Saul speaking to David uh, about his victorious battles. David answered Saul. David said unto Saul, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel? That I should be a son-in-law to the king. My father's family, the name of my father, was nothing and nobody. And Jesus rises from this. A branch shall grow out of his roots. Word branch, a shoot or a green sprout. uh, Come out of the roots beneath the ground unseen. And so it was in Bethlehem. When the Messiah was born in a little manger. Not in a palace. No, 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 not in the most prestigious hospital in the land. No, in a manger. This confirms to us what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is our king. This is our Savior, humble, meek. But one might ask, is he really qualified, this little sprig? Is he really qualified? He he pales in comparison to the majestic kings that have gone before. We'll look at our, our text. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. You remember when Christ stood up in the temple and he quoted from the book of Isaiah 
He quoted uh, not just this verse, but in particular that passage later on in Isaiah's prophecy when he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And Jesus said, This day is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears. And so we know that as Isaiah writes this in Isaiah chapter 11, he's now talking about the coming of the Messiah. By the way, that prophecy has already been fulfilled. He's come. He's risen up. And look at it with me there. He has. Revelation tells us several times, speaks about the seven spirits of God, which has caused some confusion to many people. But it's nothing more than a reference to the perfectly fulfillment and filling of the spirit of God upon and anointing upon this man, the Christ. And we find it here. Is he qualified? He doesn't look kingly. He doesn't look majestic. And he's not, we're not even talking about David anymore. We're going back to Jesse. Well, I think it's interesting because he comes from Jesse because he's not just uh, from the line of David, but he's also a son of Jesse. He's often, he's called in another, one of the prophets, called by another one of the prophets, David himself, a picture. David was a picture in some ways of our coming Messiah. And so he comes from this stump. The Bible says that this little sprig, this little twig, has the and Scripture says, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That means abide on him, not come and go, not surge and subside. No, no, no. Shall abide upon him. The Spirit of God. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul writes, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. The fullness of God was in Jesus. And again in chapter 2 of Colossians verse 9, For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness of God's divine character. The fullness all that God was. Was wrapped up in that body. And again in John chapter 3. Jesus from the lips of our Savior. For he whom God hath sent. Speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. Meaning this. He had the spirit of God in fullness of measure. Absolutely, perfectly filled, anointed, perfectly anointed and filled with the Spirit of God. This twig of Jesse, this sprout out of the root is perfectly qualified to be our Messiah. Seven is the number of perfection. Many of you know and in Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 1 and many other places talks about the seven spirits of God. And here we have it explained. The spirit of the Lord. And it goes on. And not only the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of wisdom. The spirit of the Lord. Not the spirit of man. Was upon him. The spirit of wisdom. Perfectly wise. Christ proved that didn't he? Isaiah had no idea. He had no idea at least to what extent that would be demonstrated. But when Christ Jesus walked upon this earth, he proved that he was perfectly wise. Full of wisdom, wasn't he? Oh, they tried many a times to catch him out. They tried to put him in a corner. 
asking questions. Well, let me ask you a question, master. And oh, how wise he was to redirect that question to the very soul. Oh, how wise. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of perfect wisdom, the spirit of perfect understanding. That word uh, understanding in the Hebrew uh, really gives the idea of a sharp sense of smell. It's the idea of being able to easily determine and to discern. He understands all things. Can smell a hypocrite from a mile away. Can smell a false prophet coming three miles down the road because he had a sharp sense of smell. Understanding. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel. He gives perfect counsel, perfect direction. By the way, we go to humans all the time and people all the time for advice and counsel when we should go to the great counselor himself who gives perfect counsel. What should we do in these times? One person says this and another man says this. Go to our counselor. Who has the spirit of counsel and the spirit of might. He has the power to do what he wants to do. The spirit of knowledge. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And look at this last one. The spirit of the fear of the Lord. Oh, this is an amazing qualification of our Messiah. Because he does not fear man. And when he rules and reigns and when he takes the throne and one day all the earth shall fall at his feet, he shall rule and reign and judge with perfect justice. Because it is not done according to man's wisdom and according to the fear of man. There are people today in governments and in judicial systems and in courthouses that are making judgments not based upon truth and justice but based upon a fear of man. Because somebody higher than them is moving them like a puppet on a string. Somebody else is guiding and governing them and telling them what decisions to make. And so all the nations of the world right now are trying to make decisions that affect all the people of the nations. And instead of doing what is right, many of them will do what they're told because they fear man. But not this ruler. Not him. All of this perfectly prepares him to be the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer. The spirit of the fear of the Lord willingly submitted to the Father. Living in perfect respect and perfect honor. And in verse number 3, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. This is amazing. Some render it this, and verse number three, shall make him of a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. Some say his delight is in the fear of the Lord. As he passes judgment, and as he renders to people their due reward, he does not do it, the scriptures say, according to the sight of his eyes or the hearing of his ears. And you might say, well, why would you blindfold justice? No, 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 no. No, no, this is true justice and true judgment. Not based upon what is seen or what is heard. 
All of his judgment is according to the fullness of God's spirit. All of God's wisdom. All of God's understanding. All of God's counsel and might and knowledge and done in the fear of the Lord. You see, sometimes we pass judgment and make judgment based upon what we see, don't we? And you say, well, how else are we supposed to do it? And we pass judgment upon what we hear and you say, well, how else are we supposed to do it? Very often I have two of my children come to me with a complaint. Oftentimes one is complaining against the other and one is convinced the other one has done them wrong and the other one's convinced they've done them wrong. And when the two of them come to me, usually the one with the most tears and the best argument wins. And my heart is moved by what I see. The tears running down little Eliana's cheeks. Well, the argument that Titus brings will move my heart to pass a judgment on the situation. But the Lord Jesus is not affected by what he sees and what he hears. Because oftentimes what we see and what we hear can be very deceitful. Oftentimes our arguments can be very untruthful. But here is a judge who is more concerned with his father's opinion than he is with yours. Here is a righteous judge that is more concerned with the smile of his heavenly father than he is with the smile of the one in judgment. Christ Jesus' judgment is not after sight of eyes or the hearing of his ears. And then we have in our text, very interesting, from verses nine, 6 to 9, we have another prophecy, another level of prophecy of what shall be when he comes again. And really that judgment describing. Those verses describing his judgment. Is also in reference to that final judgment as well. In fact you find there in verse number 5. Uh, verse, at the end of verse number 4. That. Uh, read verse 4. But the righteousness with righteousness shall he judge the poor. And reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And that is, many believe, a reference to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when he shall smite that wicked man of sin with his breath on a second return. And then, and then the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Unthinkable, isn't it? And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Unthinkable. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. And there's coming a day when Jesus Christ shall rule and reign and all the earth shall know and be subdued beneath his power and his control. That has not happened yet. But it will. What we read in verses 6 to 9 are things that are yet to come. And Isaiah prophesies of something that has already come with the Assyrian destruction and the judgment of God using Assyria already done. 
Then he prophesied another 700 years forward to the coming of that Messiah, that, that branch. And that's already happened. And now he prophesies even further ahead. Something that hasn't happened yet. But it will. Because just as surely as God used Assyria to judge his people, and just as certainly as God destroyed the nation of Assyria afterwards because of their pride, and just as certain as the Lord Jesus was to come and he already came, just as certain as those things, we can be assured that Jesus is coming again and shall rule and reign with a perfect justice and a perfect judgment. And that day will be glorious. And the Bible tells us something very, very encouraging and insightful in verse number 10. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand. So now, now we have Isaiah making a prophecy again about this root, about this rod out of the stem of Jesse, about this branch that shall grow out of his roots. He's prophesying again about this anointed one. And now this prophecy that he gives us stands not just when Jesus was born and not just when Jesus comes again the second time, but this prophecy stands today. Oh, it began when he came 2,000 years ago, but continues today. Because that root shall stand, the scriptures say in verse 10, for an ensign of the people. Every once in a while I'll read a word in my Bible that I'm not quite sure of. Sometimes people make an argument for using a certain part, uh, version of scripture trend. Uh, translation of scripture they say well that was too difficult it uses words that are too hard and I say that's just a lazy excuse get a dictionary out get a concordance out look it up this little word in sign is the word that means a banner standard a flag and so in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for a banner. He is the banner. He is the flag. He's the standard. And the Bible says that all shall run and to it shall the Gentiles seek. All the heathen of all the earth, all the nations are looking for something today. Looking for something to run beneath. Something to give them purpose and direction. Think about a banner waved in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a war. That gave people a passion to fight on. Gave people purpose. Gave people safety. Because they knew they were fighting beneath the banner of the king. And so today Jesus is that standard. We lift high the standard of Christ. The root of Jesse. And so that all the nations of the world might seek to it. And can I tell you today people are looking. People are looking today more than ever. For hope. And for meaning. And for purpose, because all looks dark around them. But we have a standard. We have a banner to fight beneath. A banner to live beneath. And may God help us to raise that standard high. It's not the name of our church. It's not the name of our doctrine. It's the name of our Savior, Jesus. 
May God help us to lift him high. And the Bible says there in verse number 10, To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. His rest. The rest that Jesus offers unto the Gentiles shall be glorious. It's his rest. We enter into his rest. He's already conquered it for us. A rest that follows the battle. A rest at the end of a war. A rest at the end of a big, uh, big victorious fight. That's what we enter into. It's glorious. Because every enemy, every foe shall be defeated. Every sin you struggle with shall be squashed beneath the foot of Jesus. One day death itself shall be rolled up, balled up, squashed up, and cast into the lake of fire. Where Satan himself, sin, death, and hell shall reside for the rest of eternity. Jesus is that banner. He is that standard. Run to him. There's safety beneath the banner of Christ. There's purpose beneath the banner of Jesus Christ. We read on and it talks about how he shall set up an ensign, a banner, a standard for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Gentiles and Jews gathered beneath the same banner of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, look at verse 15 and 16 in closing. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. Now watch this. And with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men go over dry shod. Literally, go over in shoes. They'll walk over. And there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria. Like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. Here's what our Savior promises. Here's what this king promises. That he will smite the seven streams, the Bible says there, of the Egyptian sea. Well, this is a picture. He refers to it very clearly. This is a picture of when Israel was delivered from Egyptian bondage. And and here's what Isaiah is saying. That this Savior will perfectly deliver us from sin. And he shall smite all seven rivers. Every sin that ever has bound you up, wrapped you up, tripped you up, kept you down, shall be once and for all destroyed by the Savior. And you and I will walk on dry land, passing through it all, to enter into his glorious presence. It's a promise. And the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. This is a highway for us. Remember what Jesus said in the book of John? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's as if he were saying, I am the highway. Walk through me. Walk by me. Walk in me, I am the highway of deliverance. I'll set you free. Christ is the banner beneath which we fight and live and battle and hope. And he 
is also the highway that deliver us from all bondage, all sin, all doubt, all discouragement, all depression, all that holds us and binds us. Jesus is the highway of deliverance, perfectly delivering us. What a beautiful picture of our Savior. Now, I wonder this morning, do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you run to that banner? Maybe, maybe you're still amidst all the cut down trees and thinking to yourself, what is happening in this world? What's going on? And maybe this morning you're very discouraged and very depressed and you don't know which way to go and you don't know what to do. And you're looking for something, looking for some purpose to live, looking for something to fight for, something to stand for. Can I tell you, let me raise up the name of Jesus this morning a little higher because he alone is worthy for you to live for and fight for and to give your life to. The banner of Christ is lifted high. If you'll just run to him, you'll find the forgiveness of all your sins, the deliverance from all of your sins and the penalty that you so rightly and justly deserve. Because I remind you, he will judge justly. He will judge purely. He will judge without sight or without hearing. It'll be according to the wisdom of God. And if you're not right with God, if you haven't run to that banner, if you haven't begun to walk on that highway of holiness, then on that day of judgment, you will be utterly consumed. So run to Christ. Today, See the Savior with arms lifted up as a mighty banner with nail-pierced hands who laid down his life that you might be forgiven, that your sins might be washed away so that on that day of judgment, the only thing that is seen is the perfect, sinless, righteous account of our holy God. Because judgment has already been poured out upon the sins on the cross of Calvary. Run to Jesus. And if you've run to Jesus, stay beneath that banner. Fight beneath that banner. Don't lay down and act like you're dead. Too many people who call themselves Christians are lying on the battlefield today, hoping it'll all be over soon. Get up and fight beneath the banner of the cross. Walk on that highway. The highway of deliverance and freedom. Walk there and you cannot go wrong.